1: This morning, as we we dive back into your word, into this great letter, uh, and we see really a dynamic of relationships and a healing that's gonna take place in relationships, I pray, Father, that this is probably an area that we can all relate to in some way, but more importantly, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us through your word, and that we would walk away here knowing more about what it means to experience the life of Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Well, to understand this, this particular part of the letter, I think it's really important that we again we understand the context in which Paul's writing this, because he's he's writing something that is very specific to this church in Corinth. It's not just a, a general counsel, although there are things that we can take away from it that would apply to us generally. It is something specifically happening between him and Paul. And so if you remember when we started this, this study on 2 Corinthians, we said that there are at least four different letters that Paul has written to this church. Uh, the first letter is lost. It's not actually 1 Corinthians. That's 2 Corinthians. And then 2 Corinthians is actually 4 Corinthians. It gets confusing. But, but the first letter, Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians. He refers to a letter that he wrote to them, talking about not to, not to associate with immoral people. And, and so he, he warns them against that. And that's actually the first letter he writes to them, but that letter has been lost, and we don't have that anymore. And then he wrote 1 Corinthians, that letter that we do have, uh, and we call 1 Corinthians. Uh, and he probably wrote that letter in, in, from Ephesus. Uh, and then he wrote a third letter, which again was also lost, but is referenced in our, what we know as 2 Corinthians. And it's often referred to as the severe letter or the sorrowful letter. Because as we're going to see in this passage today, he refers to it as a letter that caused great sorrow in, in Corinth, in that church. And so that's the third letter he wrote. And then the fourth letter he wrote is the one we're studying right now, which we know as 2 Corinthians. And he's writing this letter uh, because things changed in his plans. And so maybe, maybe he was, uh, when he wrote that third letter, uh, maybe he communicated some of his travel plans. And so if you kind of imagine now a, a map, you've got the Aegean Sea, which is on the, the get my, east coast of, of Greece and on the west coast of Turkey modern day turkey at least and so ephesus is in modern day turkey and the aegean sea is sort of that little bay in between the two and then you got directly uh, west of, of ephesus is corinth and the plan was paul says i'm going to leave ephesus i'm going to sail right across the aegean sea goes directly to you in corinth and then from there i was going to go north up to macedonia but travel plans changed instead what he decided to do is he said he had an opening presented himself for to go to asia to present the gospel so he went north up into, into asia into troas shared the gospel or attempted to share it there then went a little bit around the aegean sea and stopped in macedonia maybe it was philippi maybe it was Thessalonica, and that's where he is right now writing this letter to the corinthians there was some confusion with that, and maybe there's a risk of the confusion. The, the Corinthians were offended by Paul because he didn't go there directly; that he changed their travel plans, and so all of that is is going on here, sort of as the, as the backdrop. But really, the issue that that I think is struggling between Paul and the Corinthians was what initiated that sorrowful letter or that severe letter he wrote to them. Now, we don't know exactly what he said in there. We don't know the exact reason for it. All, at best, what we can do is we can surmise and we can speculate based on some of the things that Paul's writing here in 2 Corinthians. And what most theologians would agree is that someone or some group came in after Paul and began to cause trouble. They began to undermine Paul, began to defame Paul, and cause tension between the church of Corinth and Paul. And that that actually makes a lot of sense because that was typically what would happen. You read through the book of Acts, Paul would go and he would he would set up a church there and he would evangelize and people would come together and then he'd begin to disciple them for a time and then he would leave and after he left another group of people came in and they were called the Judaizers. Now these Judaizers their whole goal wasn't to denounce Jesus. They didn't they didn't come to say Jesus is not actually the son of God. He's not the Messiah because these are a group of people who've already faced that question and decided, no, Jesus is the true Messiah. What these Judaizers would do is they'd come into the church and they would try to add to the gospel. Specifically, they would try to bring the law into the, the new covenant. And so it was Jesus plus Moses. It was Jesus plus the feasts. It was Jesus plus um, Uh, some of the the rabbinical teachings. It was Jesus plus tithing, maybe. It was Jesus plus all kinds of other things. And they were trying to now include uh, Judaism back into Christianity. And so that would happen often. And and we read that, and Paul even warns in the church of Ephesus when he leaves, he says, there are going to be men who come, who are wolves in sheep clothing, who will try to put you back under the law. And so it would make sense that that would happen. It would make sense that they would try to undermine Paul. And so what was happening now is likely that there was conflict between Paul and Corinth because of these other groups. And by the way, that still happens today, right? I mean, think about it. When when someone first gets saved, what are they all enamored with? Who are they all enamored with? It's all about Jesus. And they just love Jesus and seeing Jesus and, and Jesus is enough. And then people, what do they do? They start adding things. They start adding the law. They start adding the rules. Well, make sure you're doing this and make sure you're, you're showing up to church every Sunday and make sure you're reading your Bible and make sure you're giving the right amount. Make sure you're serving enough. Make sure you're wearing the right clothes and you're cheering for the right teams and listening to the right music and, and all these other rules get added into the gospel. And it's no longer Jesus plus nothing. It becomes Jesus plus all these behavioral patterns. And so that's, it's likely that was happening in Corinth and it's still happening to this day. And so now Paul's addressing this issue. And so if we read beginning in chapter seven, verse two, Paul writes to them, verses two to four, he says, make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I've said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. Notice here, Paul, what he doesn't do here. I think it's really, really significant what he doesn't do. He doesn't come and lay down the hammer on these people. right? He doesn't begin to now accuse them and say, I can't believe you you thought these things about me. I can't believe you questioned my heart. I mean, for all that I've done and all that I've sacrificed and this is how you repay me, this is how you treat me. He could have done that and given them a strong dose of guilt and manipulation to win them back. That's not what he does. Instead, what what does he do? He says, open your heart to me. Let let the love that I have for you in." Trust that I'm I'm for you. Trust that I'm with you. He says, I'm with you to the end. Whether we die together, we we live together, we're together. I'm completely, entirely on your side. And he's he's saying, "I'm, I'm not trying to condemn you, which is important because he said some harsh things. He said some stern things to them, as we're gonna discover as we go on. But he says, it wasn't meant to beat you up. It wasn't my heart. And I think that's important to understand because sometimes we do have to say difficult things to people. Sometimes conflict can be really, really good and healthy, but it's never easy. It's never simple and straightforward. And so he says to them, what I was offering to you wasn't wasn't to beat you up. It wasn't to put you back under the law. Remember what he says in in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 about the law. The law is a minister of what? Death and condemnation. That wasn't my point. That wasn't my heart. Instead, I want to offer you grace because grace is a ministry of life and righteousness. It's freedom. That's what he's wanting to offer. That's his heart. And so what he's trying to say is is open your heart to us. It's the same language that he was using in chapter six. Remember, we saw that, but chapter six, about how he's saying, beginning, open your hearts. Look at how we've loved you. Look at what we've sacrificed. Let us in now. Let this love we have for you into your hearts so you can know it. It's really, the whole letter has been building to this point here. In many ways, you could argue that from the the middle of chapter two, right around verse 14, till this moment, Paul has been on an aside. Oh, it's been a glorious aside. You know, we call it a, a rabbit trail, you know, following a rabbit, but it was a fat rabbit, so it's worth following. And he explained about the heart of new covenant ministers and what that looks like in the gospel and, and how we're new creations in Christ and the old is gone, behold, the new has come and we've been righteous in Jesus. And he's, he's explained, don't now don't yoke yourself to the world, but open your hearts to us. And so he's, he's gone on this giant aside. He's gonna now kind of pick up where he left off in the middle of chapter two here in verse five. So in verse five, he says, for when we came into Macedonia, right? So remember, he leaves Ephesus and he goes north into to Troas, which is in Asia, and then goes around the Aegean Sea to the north side of it, and that's the province of Macedonia. And he says, for even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God who comforts the depressed, comfort us with the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also the comfort with which he is comforted in you. As he reported to us, your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, and I rejoiced even more. So remember what we saw in, in chapter one of this book about the trouble he had in Asia, that God called him to Asia. He knew it, there was an open door. He was confident that God was leading him to Asia, but he was expecting that it was going to be an incredible revival. That, that all of a sudden, you know, he'd preached the gospel and 5,000 people were baptized, much like we read in the book of Acts. That's what Paul was expecting. Is that what Paul found though? No, remember he wrote, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware of the affliction of the struggle that we faced, that we were burdened beyond what we could handle. We saw that there was an important truth because there's a lie that is being taught that, that we hear over and over again, at least God won't give you more than you can handle. It's not in the scriptures. And we saw that the opposite is true. In this case, God gave Paul something more than he could handle. Why? Why would would God do that? Because he didn't want Paul to handle it. And that's what we saw, that Paul writes in, in, in chapter one and verse nine, that these things happen, that we learn not to trust in ourselves, but in the God who raises the dead. He had to learn that. And you learn that not by reading the book, I mean, you can learn about it by reading a book. You can learn about it by listening to a message. You can learn about it by talking with a friend, but you don't know it until you experience it, until you actually go through it. And so Paul had to learn now to trust God in situations that are overwhelming, bigger than him, because they're not bigger than God. And so that was the trouble he was facing. But he says, even when we left Asia and we go to Macedonia and we get out of that, that, that crucible, that, that furnace, that, that, that place of affliction, he says, it didn't go away. We're still facing that conflict from without. We're still facing all that trouble. Maybe it was the, the memory of it, or maybe there were still other people in Macedonia that were harassing him. But more importantly, he says, and we face the fears within. And again, he talks about the depression he went through we're going to talk about more about this coming up but but I want to I want to highlight that part there. Paul says I was depressed. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to go through difficult times, but in that time God ministered to him. God comforted him and he used the church to do so. Again, we're going to talk about that more next time, but but let's let's see more about what begins to unpack here. And I think this is the the key part of the letter or a passage this morning, it's in verse eight to, to the beginning of 13. So Paul writes, though for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. Look what he says here. This, this sorrowful letter, this severe letter, this, this letter that had bite to it. What does Paul say? I don't regret it, because I'm, I'm liking how it turned out, but for a moment there, I had deep sorrow, deep regret. Have you ever had to say something or do something and, and afterwards you're like, oh, was that, was that too harsh? Was that too blunt? Well, that's what Paul found himself as he wrote this letter and for a time he was wondering, how are they gonna receive it? Have I destroyed the relationship? Have I I cut them too deep? And so he had this regret here. And again, I think that's important for us to see. I mean, sometimes we make Paul into this, this incredible apostle that's almost on the same par as Jesus, where he just never made any mistakes and he never struggled and he never went through life and no problems. But Paul was just like you and me. He had his fears, he had his insecurities, he had his doubts, he had his worries, he had his good days and his bad days. And here he's writing this letter and he's like, I'm not sure, maybe it was too harsh, maybe it was, maybe it was too much. But then he saw what God was doing. And from that, he says, I don't have any regrets anymore for it. Instead, he goes on in verse nine, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful. Like that wasn't my goal. My goal wasn't to beat you up. My goal wasn't to make you miserable. But that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you are made sorrowful according to the will of God in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong! In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that for your earnestness on your behalf might be known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we've been comforted. All right, that's a big section. Let's, let's unpack this a little bit here. So Paul says, I'm, I'm not rejoicing over your sorrow, but I'm rejoicing that that sorrow led to repentance. This, this godly sorrow, he calls it, that led to a godly repentance. So first off, let's understand the word repentance. Anyone know what repentance means? Often it's, it's thought of or translated to, to change what you're doing, right? That's often what it's thinking, that you are, you are doing something and you've repented, so you stop doing that and you've changed direction and you're going another way. That's not what it means. The Greek word is metanoia, and it literally means to change your mind, to change what you're thinking. You see, that's that's what repentance is. It's not about behavior because your behavior, your habits, and what you're doing is the product of what you believe and what you know to be true or think to be true at least. And so they were believing something about Paul. They were believing that Paul wasn't a true apostle. They were believing that Paul didn't really love them. They were believing that Paul was probably trying to use them and manipulate them, that he was trying to build his own career off of their backs, that he was just interested in their money and more interested in his own fame. That's what they were believing about Paul. And so this repentance comes where they changed their thinking, they changed their mind. That's what happened at your salvation, right? that you had a line of thinking, you had a way of thinking that I don't need God, that I could be my own God, that I can be in charge, that I can save myself, that I'm really not that bad of a person. And then you repent of that thinking and you begin to see that I need a savior. I need rescuing because on my own, my soul is dark. I'm controlled by sin, but God loves me. And I can trust this God to rescue me and redeem me and restore me. And, and so we repented of our thinking of trying to be our own God and we let God be God. Well, in this repentance here, they were repenting on their thinking about who Paul was to who, who he actually is. And they changed their mind on that. And so he's, he's appreciative of, of that fact here. But let's, let's understand because he talks about this godly sorrow that is different than the world's sorrow. Right, because I think, I think it's easy. The, the, another word we might use here is guilt. And, and Pastor Greg likes to, to say guilt's probably not the right word. And I, I kind of agree with him, but I'm not, I'm not as legalistic as Greg is with guilt. I'm just going to say that. But, so I don't think guilt's a bad word. And, and I don't think Greg actually leads that either. But, but guilt has this, con- has this connotation to it of, of feeling bad, of beating yourself up, of feeling a little condemned not necessarily shame, but condemned over what you've done. And and it leaves you feeling down, leaves you kind of dragging your feet. You feel guilty. But the word here of the sorrow is really this, this word of remorse. This remorse, which is, I feel bad about what I've done, but I don't feel condemned for what I've done. And that's really important because how much condemnation is there now in Jesus Christ to you? Romans 8.1 says there's not one, literally not one single condemnation coming towards you in Christ Jesus. It's already been addressed and dealt with on the cross. And so this godly sorrow that he's talking about here is really, it's leading to this repentance, it's leading to change. But I think what's interesting here, this, this aspect of godly sorrow is is it's not just sort of, oh, I did it. I'm sorry you felt that way. I'm sorry you're miserable about it, but off I go. This godly sorrow, this remorse, there's something inside the person that says, I don't wanna ever do that again. I don't ever wanna make that same mistake. I remember, I remember one time with, with our kids, and I can't tell you the whole story because my kids are starting to say if I use them in illustrations, that I have to pay them. <laughs> Um I don't like that plan, but um, so I'm I'm not gonna give you the details of the story. But but one of my children had done something, and it was it was pretty significant. There were two things actually back to back. It was pretty significant that they'd done this, and, and they, they came down, and they confessed to us. And I think that was that was beautiful. That that they came to us not when they were caught, but because God put it on their heart. And their conscience was, was, was awakened to what they'd done. And so this one child came down after bedtime and all sheepishly explained to us what they had done. And, and it was, again, it was pretty significant. Like our jaws were, were kind of uh, gaping at what happened. And, uh, and if you want to know, then just give me some money to pay my child and I'll tell you the story. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> let's negotiate. So... <laughs> So we say we, say, we say to this child afterwards, though we want you want you to know that you're completely loved, that you're completely accepted and you're forgiven. And they said, I know. And they walked up back to bed, all happy. And I'm telling you, I was a little disappointed. <laughs> I mean, me. I'm I'm happy they know they loved. I'm I'm thrilled to know that they could come to us without fear, that they know no matter what they've done, they're still going to have a place, they're still loved, and they're still accepted by us, by God, and they're right. And that was wonderful. But I wanted to see a little sorrow. (laughs) I did. Because what that sorrow tells me is they understood what they did was wrong. And they're not going to make that same mistake again. And so what that sorrow tells me is it, is it helps me to understand where they're at. You see, we gotta think of it in terms of a train, that there, there starts off with an offense. And that offense might be by two people back and forth. Maybe think about you know, two friends or, or a married couple where they're fighting back and forth and they both say harsh things back to one, towards one another. Or maybe it just starts with one person where one person says something harsh or one certain person betrays their trust. Maybe they gossip to another friend uh, about them or or maybe they say something careless to them. But all it takes is one person to cause an offense. And that offense now leads to the need for forgiveness. And again, forgiveness is one-sided. Forgiveness isn't when I come to you asking for forgiveness for how I hurt you. Forgiveness is by the person offended when they choose to release the debt. That's forgiveness. And it's important that the offended person forgive, not to let the other person off the hook, because it has nothing to do with the other person. It's all about the freedom that you need. And so when you forgive, you are releasing yourself as the prisoner. Because if you don't forgive, you're choosing bitterness. And that bitterness will eat away, that bitterness will destroy you, and that bitterness will kill you. But forgiveness is not the end of the train. The end of the train is reconciliation. And it's important to understand, reconciliation is not forgiveness. They're not the same thing. Forgiveness allows for reconciliation. So think of it this way. The offense is where the trust was broken down because every offense in a relationship breaks trust. Sometimes small, sometimes big, but trust is broken. Forgiveness releases the debt, but reconciliation is where that trust is rebuilt. And now it takes two people. And a key element of that reconciliation is that knowledge that the person understands what they did was wrong. They don't just, they don't like the consequence. I mean, you see this in your kids, right? Kids, kids hurt one another, and, and so you say, tell, you know, tell little Bobby you're sorry. I'm sorry. Are they really sorry? No. Now, I don't think it's wrong for those little kids to, to teach them you need to apologize, you need to say sorry, because in that moment, they're, they're, they, don't, they don't understand it yet, and they're, they're learning. They're figuring it out but you can see that they're not actually sorry. And so guess what's gonna happen? They're gonna do the same thing over and over and over again because there isn't that true godly sorrow. But when you see that sorrow, and I describe it in this way, it's that, oh my soul, what have I done moment. That's what I'm looking for. When I'm, when I'm counseling people, often couples, where, where one has betrayed the other, And they come in and they begin to explain what they've done. I'm looking for the, oh, my soul. And what that will look like is it's not, they're not blaming the other person. They're not saying basically, well, I did this because you did this, this, and this. Now it's true, they might've done all those things, but you're still responsible for your actions and your choices. Here's the thing, let me give you this illustration. Suppose I come up to Adam and I start pestering Adam. I start annoying Adam. And I start, you know, kind of getting really close to his eye, but never actually touching him. So I'm, I'm a pest. I'm annoying. And so, so Adam pff, slugs me, hauls off. Now, am I responsible for him hitting me? No, that's his choice. But I, I contributed to it. I'm not innocent and all that, but Adam is completely responsible for the choice he made in hitting me. And so that's that that sorrow that would say, you know what? It doesn't matter what anyone else did. I see what I did and what I did was wrong. What I said to you, how I treated you and, and, and how I betrayed your trust, it's totally wrong. And you have that godly sorrow, that, oh, my soul, that isn't one of condemnation, but there's a healthy sorrow. And I'm telling you that healthy sorrow is so healthy. It's so good because it leads us back to Jesus. There was a a moment in my life, I remember, where, where I'd gotten into a lifestyle of sin. And at the beginning, when I started on that path, I was a Christian, I was a believer. And at the beginning, my soul knew it was wrong. And I could hear God very clearly saying, this is not right, this is wrong." but the sin was felt too good, and so I kept doing it, I kept doing it, and it got the voice of God seemed to get quieter and quieter, when really it was just the voice of sin was getting louder and louder and louder, and to the point where I didn't feel guilty afterwards for a while, until something began to change, and I began to feel that sorrow, that, that, that grief, that this is not right part of my soul, and it wasn't fun, but it was the healthiest thing that I could ever experience. The, the best way I could describe it is, have you ever been like sitting on your foot and then you, you get off of it and all of a sudden you feel pins and needles in your foot? I learned this, this is incredible to me. That sensation of pins and needles is actually your foot coming alive again. That for the time when you were sitting on it and you couldn't feel it, your foot was dead because you're cutting off the blood flow. And now that the blood is flowing in, that pins and needles, which feels weird, feels awkward, is actually coming back to life. That's what this godly sorrow is. It's coming back to life. doesn't always feel good and feel comfortable, but you're coming back to life because what was unhealthy, what was hurting you and those around you, you become numb to. And now you're beginning to experience God again. That healthy, that godly sorrow. Does that make sense? And and what's incredible here is that what it was doing is, Paul says, it's revealing your heart. Verse 11, for behold, what earnestness, this very thing, this godly sorrow is produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. He says, what it did is you came alive to what you really desire, what you really want. And what you really want, Paul is in this case saying, is, is you want a relationship, you want to love the people of God, you wanna trust God, you wanna trust his apostle, you are coming alive. And you see this godly sorrow, what it was doing in me in that day was I was, my heart was coming alive again because my real desire was not sin, right? My real true desire is not sin. Remember what Paul says in Romans 7, I'm doing the very thing I don't want to do doing the very thing I hate. And that's what I was doing for a time until it started coming alive. And that godly sorrow over my sin is telling me, my heart is good. My heart is righteous because I desire good and righteous things. And I was, I was living in a way that was inconsistent with my true desires. I was led astray. And so this godly sorrow is awakening us back to what we really crave for, what we really desire. And all that happened because Paul was willing to speak truth. Paul was willing to have conflict. I think that's so important. As as a counselor, I've I've had the the part of the job that I've hated the most is having to speak to people what the flesh looks like in their life because I have to hold up a mirror to them. I have to confront them at times with the ugliness of their flesh, the ugliness of their self-centeredness when in their mind, they've come to me because everyone else is the problem not them. And I have to actually say to them, actually, you're the problem. Now, yes, your your spouse or your kids or your friends or your workplace, they've got their own problems, but guess what? I'm only talking to you right now and this is your problem. And it's never fun to do that. And I've had people at times say to me, "I, I thought you taught grace. Where's the grace in all this? Where's the love? And the reality is I love you because I'm speaking to you and I'm speaking to you because I love you. That's why I'm confronting you. Think about it this way. The degree to you which you love someone is the degree to which you're willing to enter in the conflict for them. Did you hear what I said there? Not conflict with them, but conflict for them. If, if I don't love Sheila, if I don't care about Sheila, I don't care about Sheila. And I'm just happy to not have any ripples, any negative impact here. I'm not gonna say anything to Sheila because I don't care about Sheila and I don't want Sheila upsetting me. Because I'm willing to love Sheila, I'm willing to say the hard things to her and vice versa. Because we care for one another and we're willing to speak truth. But it's not just speak truth, it's speak truth in love. It's together. It's two sides of the same coin. And too often, what we've done is we've chosen one side at the expense of the other. We think that if I'm going to love you, then I can't tell you the truth, which doesn't help anyone. Which really doesn't help anyone. Think about evangelism. I, I saw a, a short clip. Um, it was, uh, I don't know if it was Pen or Teller. Uh, it was the magician. You know, the ma- Pen and Teller, the magicians? It's the one who talks. That's the I think it's Penn, but it could be Teller, right? And uh, anyways, he, he was he was just a little video, and, and he's, he's a proud atheist. Be very open about that. But he says this, he goes, here's why I don't listen, I don't believe Christians and when they share the gospel, is because if you really believe that gospel, if you really believe that sinners go to hell, then they, you wouldn't shut up about it. You would fight for us. You would make sure that we heard that gospel but you're too quiet about it. And I think we're too quiet about it because we're afraid of offending. And so we, we choose, we think is love at the expense of truth. And the reality is we don't actually love them enough. We don't love them enough to actually share what is true. And it's hard to do that. I recognize that. But the, the more you believe it, the more you will willing to enter into that conflict. The more you know they need it. And so this this dynamic that's so important, speaking truth in love together. And that was the case here, that Paul was more concerned about the Corinthians than he was his own comfort. He's willing to engage in that conflict, willing to face it head on so that they could hear the truth. They could hear the good news and they could live in freedom. That's what he was after. And so the question for us is now, are we willing to speak truth in love? Please understand, we gotta pick our battles. Right? It's, Jesus warns us. He says, don't, don't cast your pearls before the swine. Meaning, understand, if that person is completely closed to it, don't pick a fight. And we see that in Jesus, right? In, in Jesus' day, there's all kinds of different factions, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and other religious groups and so forth. And what they were often trying to do is they are asking Jesus, they go, Rabbi Jesus, teacher Jesus, help us settle this, to political debates. Do you believe in this or do you believe in that? And they were trying to suck Jesus into the political debate. And sometimes he answered it. Sometimes he chose not to answer it. Sometimes he just avoided the question. Sometimes he challenged them and said, I'll tell you what, I'll answer your question if you answer mine first. And they chose not to because they knew if they answered that question, they were in trouble. That was over John the Baptist. and So they went away quiet. And so there is moments where Jesus chose to engage. There is moments where Jesus chose not to engage. So he picked his battles. And that's what we need to do as well, which can be scary to some, because then the question is, how do I know when to pick the battle? How do I know what to say? And what's the answer? Jesus will tell you. Because where is Jesus? He's in you and he will speak to you. He will say, speak up, be quiet. Say this, don't say that. Say it this way. We can trust the Holy Spirit in you to teach you and to lead you in the moment. But I think there's some great counsel for us in 2 Timothy chapter 2. So so turn to the right. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. And I think what we see here is some wise counsel As to what it will look like. And this is what, what Paul is writing to, to Timothy about how he's to interact with people. And now he says in verse 22, now flee from useful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. I wanted to include that part because I think it's very similar to what he was saying at the end of chapter 16, chapter six, sorry, about yoke, right? He's saying, don't yoke with the world. Flee from youthful lust. Flee from that worldly way, but yoke yourself with us, with the church. And so this idea now, he says, but pursue those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Yoke with the church. Verse 23, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Man, if, if Christians follow that one verse alone, we would probably speak half as much getting all kinds of arguments about, do you celebrate Christmas and do you celebrate Halloween? Do you celebrate um, Valentine's Day? Do Do you eat this? Do you go here? Do you do that? All kinds of fruitless discussions. All they produce is quarrels. So he says, Timothy, don't get involved in that. Verse 24, and the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held, held captive by him to do his will." I love that passage. I read that passage as a reminder to me. Speak truth and love. Correct with gentleness. Care for their heart. That's more important than their behavior, more important than what they're doing. Build that relationship. And if it's sometimes you have to challenge it, you have to expend the trust that you've built, but do so because you love them. Do so because there's something worth redeeming in that relationship so that they will benefit. And that's what Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians, right? That we wanted you to to receive from us so that you could benefit from us. That that the teaching, what we're offering to you, you would receive and you would trust and you would know Jesus better. That's what he was after. It wasn't for his gain, it wasn't for his sake, it was for their sake. And so now he concludes, back in 2 Corinthians 7. Verse 13, for this reason we've been comforted and besides our comfort we, are re- we rejoiced, even much more for the joy of Titus because the spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also your boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. And his affection abounds all the more toward you. As he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling, I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. I read that passage, and I, what struck me was that Paul didn't go bad mouthing the, the Corinthians. He wasn't going to, to Timothy and saying, man, those, those Corinthians are such failures. They're so ungrateful. He didn't run them down. He posted to them. How could he do that? How could he do that when he saw and knew of the conflict that was going on? Because he saw their hearts. They're new creations. There's the temple of God. They're right and they're holy and they're light. They're good. And Timothy, when you see their heart, you're gonna love them. Man, you're gonna love being with them. And then Timothy goes there and he saw it to be true. And and that boasting didn't even measure up to how good they were. And so Paul's affirming them. Can you see his heart? Do you see the care and the love that he has for them? Well, I think for us then that this becomes a great example of what it looks like for us to fight for one another, for us to fight in relationship, to be willing to engage in conflict, to be willing to, to say the difficult things, to say the hard things that are necessary speaking truth in love, correcting with gentleness, correcting out of love so that they would be better off as a result. And hopefully that godly sorrow is produced in them. Again, produced by God, not by me, not by manipulation, not by shame, but this godly sorrow that leads to godly repentance. Let's pray. Father, I'm, I'm so grateful that in your word, what you've done is you've given us truth. You've, you've, you've shown to us what what real life looks like, and you haven't tried to wash it and make it look pretty, that there is still conflict from time to time between us within the church. There are times where we have to confront one another and say difficult things, but you show us how. You show us the heart behind it. And I pray, Father, that when those moments come, whether it be with a with our family member or a friend or maybe a coworker. Maybe it's about sharing the gospel with them. That we remember that, that in love, we're willing to say the hard things, but more important, that we'll trust you to lead us. Trust you to give us the words, the moment, the times, and even the tone in which we deliver it. So that reconciliation, that redemption can take place between you and them or between us and them. And we might share more of your life together. In your name we pray